Good afternoon, and welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation is entitled, Information is a Public Good. It was presented in person by Spencer Graves and via Zoom by Doug Samuelson on October 29, 2023 at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Our speakers, Doug Samuelson, is founder and principal scientist at InfoLogics Incorporated in Annandale, Virginia. Um, he has co-authored with Spencer a paper on the economics of infectious diseases that was published a year and a half ago in Real World Economics Review. Um, Doug is also um, a leader in the statistics and human rights section of the American Statistical Association. Subsection committee. I'm sorry? Committee, not section. He has been a member of the Military Operations Research Society. Um, so we're glad to have him join us today. A little bit on Spencer. So Spencer was raised on a farm in rural Cheyenne County, Kansas. He served six years in the U.S. Air Force during the war in Vietnam. He had been on active duty for three months when it came to him that the South Vietnamese could have a home team advantage. Why did they need foreign troops when their enemies did not? His meditations on that question helped turn him into a compulsive fact checker. And if you have any doubt about that, he has over 30,000 entries in Wikipedia and Wikimedia um, outlets that you could peruse. Um, he went on to get a PhD in statistics at the University of Wisconsin and has done a lot of research in a broad range of areas. Since you mentioned degrees, I'd like to point out that I have a doctorate in operations research from George Washington University. Oh, thank you. I did forget to add that for you, so I appreciate that. Spencer has been involved with the forum now for about three years, I think. He's also a primary content producer with Craig Lubo, who's a member of the forum uh, for Radioactive Magazine, which airs on KKFI on Tuesday evenings. He's also Secretary of PeaceWorks here in Kansas City and President of the Friends of Community Media. Okay, thanks, Alex. If I know the perfect solution to any societal problem, it will not help anyone unless it is shared by a critical mass of some body politic. And then it will happen whether I support it or, or oppose it or I'm completely ignorant of it. This works because virtually everyone thinks they know more than they do. And media organizations exploit that to benefit those who control the money for the media. By extension, I acclaim that it is in your best interest and mine to help supporters of our worst enemies get information they want because doing so 
would likely reduce the ability of their leaders and ours to stampede us into ill-advised and counterproductive actions. These observations support the claim that information is a public good. Economists define a public good as a good or service that is both non-rivalrous and non-excludable. Non-rivalrous means that we can all consume it at the same time. The opposite, rivalrous, an example is an apple. If I eat an apple, you cannot eat the same apple. Um, a, a, a newspaper, a printed newspaper may be rivalrous because it may not be easy for you and I to simultaneously read the same page uh, at the same time. However, the news itself is non-rivalrous because both of us and anyone else can potentially consume the same news at the same time, especially it is if it is published on the internet um, or broadcasted on radio and television. Person or organization can copyright a particular choice of words, expression, uh, to, uh, to convey information, but they cannot copyright the information itself. In that way, information is non-rivalrous. Non-excludable -exclu means that once the thing is produced, anyone can use it without paying for it. Information is non-excludable because everybody can, 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 can consume it at the same time um, at once, uh, once it becomes available. In fact, it is more valuable, information is more valuable to me if you consume it also because that makes it a lot easier for us to discuss it and demand action if action seems appropriate. In this way, we claim that information meets the definition that economists have for public goods. Last April, Doug Samuelson and Eva Lee uh, presented to this forum talking about the, the threat of misinformation to public health. Doug? Honest information about the COVID-19 pandemic is a public good, because once it's produced, nobody can capture the benefits of providing it. Everyone would benefit from having some credible shared resource, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, compile and distribute information about epidemics and other threats to public health and what people should do to protect themselves and others. Police highways, national defense, or other examples of public goods. The U.S. used to regulate TV and radio news broadcasting, basically regulating the bandwidth as a public good, requiring fairness and balance in access. Social media and private information channels that use social media have no such regulation. In particular, disinformation about the effectiveness and risks of vaccine has been widespread and effective, even though widely debunked by more reliable sources. This suggests that disinformation is a public evil. We have not yet seen economists discussing public evils, but this certainly seems to qualify because too many of the deaths from COVID could have been prevented if certain major media sources and social media sources had not made so much money disseminating claims that almost they almost certainly knew were false. 
According to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a highly respected Washington, D.C. think tank, Russia has been using social media to disseminate propaganda aimed at confusing and discouraging citizens and undermining trust in government in the U.S. and in many other countries, mostly in Europe. If information is a public good, as we claim, then combating disinformation is as well. Spencer? Political polarization in the United States, from what we've seen, uh, began to increase when the Reagan administration did away with the FCC Fairness Doctrine. Between 1949 and 1987, the Fairness Doctrine had required the holders of broadcast licenses to both present controversial views of public importance and to do so in a manner that fairly reflected differing viewpoints. After the Fairness Doctrine was suspended, the commercial broadcast networks changed their policies in ways that increased political polarization, a special kind of market segmentation. A leader in this was Rush Limbaugh, who specialized in denigrating his opponents with dog whistle terms like feminazis and libtards. This change in the media, I believe, facilitated the politics of Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House of Representatives during the six years, six of uh, the eight years of the Clinton administration uh, in the late 90s. Political scientists have credited Gingrich with playing a key role in hastening political polarization and partisanship. I believe that the U.S. political process has deteriorated um, and gridlock increased in Washington uh, as a result um, and uh, to the detriment of the poor and the middle class because of the suspension of the Fairness Doctrine. Doug? And along with the Fairness Doctrine, but another change was that the line between news and commentary got blurred at that time because of the nature of the media. We're picking on Rush Limbaugh for a reason. Rush Limbaugh was one of the pioneers, and he promoted his broadcasts by saying, this is a direct quote, I'll tell you what's happening, and I'll tell you what to think about it. His success in attracting viewers and followers inspired others to emulate him, often heavily mixing news and opinion. And then the Internet came in, and Internet companies like Facebook and Twitter, now X, found they could make money by reinforcing people's preconceptions, um, dramatically increasing political polarization worldwide. In my opinion, I believe that any conservative leader honestly concerned about the future of the nation would support a fairness doctrine that would target unfair liberal media as well as unfair conservative media. Our conservative leaders who absolutely vehemently oppose a fairness doctrine really saying that they want more political polarization, more uh, even threatening another civil war in the United States, uh, going far beyond the attacks on the U.S. Capitol on um, January 6th of 2021. What also happened starting in the 1980s was the expansion of social media information channels like America Online. AOL, and of course, then much more in the 90s with Facebook and uh, Twitter and whoever. It became easier and easier 
for advocates to build online communities of people who rallied around similar interests and positions. Basically, as Marshall McLuhan had predicted about TV in the 1960s, we developed into a global village, his term, of virtual tribes, or as some analysts call them now, echo chambers. As McLuhan also predicted, we became more and more absorbed in our own views and those of others who agree with us, and thereby became numbed to what's happening and uninterested in information that challenges our opinions. This makes it easier for propagandists to target us with material designed to pull us into supporting their objectives, possibly at a cost to our own. One ex- I'm sorry, go ahead, Doug. No, no, go ahead. So one example is media influence on land use <clears throat> decisions. Almost two weeks ago, October 17, Alex Vitale spoke at UMKC. Vitaly is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and coordinator of their policing and social justice project. In the preface to the 2021 update edition of his book on end of policing, he wrote, in most cities, economic development schemes are generally the product of cooperative arrangements between real estate developers, economic elites, political, uh, local politicians, and mainstream media outlets. Many, probably most, local politicians are elected based on uh, campaign contributions from local developers and elites who who also control most of the money for local media and from construction trade unions who want the jobs. Most local media outlets have a conflict of interest in honestly reporting on multiple things, including the following. How politicians get their get the money for their campaigns and the extent to which the public does or does, does not actually benefit um, from, uh, from the things that the politicians do while in office. Research has documented that, that as local news declines, voter turnout also declines, politicians spend less uh, to get elected, they do not work as hard while in office, and the cost of government increases. This suggests one thing that a team of volunteer, uh, volunteers might do to improve local government. Lobby continually with city councils, um, county legislatures or, or legislatures or boards of supervisors, and other organizations with the authority to grant special favors to developers and to, to demand that all such favors, tax increments, financing, or TIF being one, include substantive funding for honest, independent evaluation by outside experts, preferably academics, who should submit their work to peer review in refereed academic journals. In addition, those grants of subsidies for development should also include effective clawback provisions requiring beneficiaries of public largesse to return the subsidies they get if the evaluations fail to deliver uh, and document the promised uh, benefits. People concerned about education in Kansas City, Missouri in particular, have expressed concern that so much money has been given away to developers uh, that schools cannot get the funds needed 
to provide quality education. One of the easiest targets in that, in that regard, I think, would be the current request for a new stadium. The Kansas City Royals are lobbying for a new stadium with substantial funding from the taxpayers. <clears throat> there is a Wikipedia article on stadium subsidy that says, quote, stadium subsidies are widely criticized for using taxpayer funds to benefit franchise owners who are often billionaires to the detriment of public schools and infrastructure. A review of the empirical literature uh, assessing the effects public of subsidies for professional sports franchises and facilities reveals that most evidence goes against sports subsidies. Specifically, subsidies cannot be justified on the grounds of local economic development, income growth, or job creation. That article includes references to nine different sources supporting those two sentences alone, with 98 total references in that article. You know, you do not, do not have to believe anything in Wikipedia. You can check their sources. The references in that Wikipedia article on stadium subsidies are public goods. They will be even better if we can get that information more widely disseminated in ways that inspire action by concerned citizens to demand that proposed stadium subsidies and other uh, grants by government to special interests uh, consider all the available evidence. I'm willing to work with others to study that research and to make those those uh, results more widely known, but I'm not going to take take on the the um, the issue of the uh, stadium subsidy um, by myself. If you'd like, if you would like to collaborate on this, please let me know. There are growing literatures on the increase in political polarization worldwide and the decline in the quality of news in the U.S., especially local news. I think there is a relationship between increasing political polarization and the decline in, in local news, though I cannot prove that without randomized controlled trials uh, that manage to improve the, the quality of local news in some jurisdictions and collect uh, and do so while collecting data to determine the extent to which such in interventions do or do not reduce political polarization and contribute to improving government and society more generally. McChesney and Nichols, Robert McChesney has spoken here uh, uh, in the past, uh, reported that newspapers were over 1% of the U.S. economy, gross domestic product or GDP, in 1956, and less than a tenth of a percent of GDP in, in 2020. In 2020, media scholar Penny Abernathy <coughs> Noted that since 2008, the U.S. had lost more than half excuse me, of all local journalists. The U.S. had lost over half of all local journalists, and a quarter of U.S. newspapers had closed in the previous 15 years. And many of those that survived were publishing less, creating news deserts and ghost newspapers, some with no local journalists on staff. The famous Kansas City Star is, is um, a shadow of its former self. 
McChesney and Nichols think that this trend can be reversed by distributing 15 hundredths of a percent of GDP to local news nonprofits via local elections within counties or multi-county regions. They have several requirements for an organization to appear on the ballot to get that, that, some of that money. One is that any newspaper, any news organization that appears on that ballot must be purely local. It cannot be a subsidiary of a larger organization. Also, it must publish something they call news on their website five days per week with a permissive copyright that others could republish it. In addition, at least 70% of their budget uh, for staff must go to local journalists. And no one organization can get more than 20% of the total funds to support a greater diversity of perspectives. In particular, national public radio and, um, and public television stations could not appear on that ballot because they are subsidiaries of national organizations. Besides, Conservatives in the U.S. Congress have tried repeatedly to prohibit any federal funds from going to um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We need journalism from a variety of sources. We do not need news whose editorial policies can be heavily influenced by people who are not local. That figure of 15 hundredths of a percent of GDP is uh, roughly what the U.S. spent on citizen-directed subsidies for newspapers under the U.S. Postal Service Act of 1792. Under that act, newspapers were delivered up to 100 miles for a penny when first-class postage was between 6 and 25 cents, depending on distance. McChesney and Nichols suggest that subsidies provided by the U.S. Postal Service Act of 1792 gave the, U the early United States the most diverse uh, newspaper industry in the world at any time, po probably the most independent news publishers per capita or per million population uh, anywhere in the world at any time before or since. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, his, uh, wrote in his famous Democracy in America that when he visited the U.S. in 1831, nearly every hamlet had its own newspaper. He contrasted that with France, which in, uh, at that time had very few newspapers, but the ones that existed were very powerful. Most of the content of those French newspapers was political commentary. The individual newspapers in the U.S., by contrast, were three-quarters advertisements, and most of the rest of the space was what we would today call straight news. The individual newspapers in the U.S., Tocqueville said, had very little power because there were so many of them. But collectively, Tocqueville said their power was second only to that of the people. The resulting relatively easy access to a variety of newspapers encouraged literacy and limited political corruption, both of which helped create the political economy that helped the United States achieve its current leadership position in the international stage today. You and I benefit from reports, I claim, in newspapers published 200 years ago. 
newspapers we have never read that encouraged literacy and limited political corruption and contributed to the flowering of improvements in science and technology that helped bring the United States to its current position of leadership in the international economy. These 200-year-old news reports are public goods, and we argue for a very good investment in public funds. May I repeat that? We all benefit today from investments in public funds 200 years ago in newspaper reports that we have never read. And of course, the vast majority of people living in the U.S. 200 years ago also benefited from those newspapers, whether they read them or not, because they helped make the entire political economy more productive. When I addressed this forum a year and a, a, year and a half ago, I said that a city like Kansas City could fund citizen-directed subsidies for local news like that by matching what it spends on accounting and auditing, advertising, media, and public relations with subsidies for local news distributed via local elections, as McChesney and Nichols suggested. Last July, I published an update uh, on that analysis in the working paper, in a working paper on Wikiversity um, that I think was mentioned previously on information as a public good. That working paper reviews the li literature I found describing the impact of news on political economy and suggesting randomized controlled trials in poor communities to quantify the impact of such citizen-directed subsidies on local news. Correlation does not imply causation. I have therefore suggested collaborating with organizations like the World Bank and others that fund community and local development projects and trying to improve local news in a random subset of such projects those uh, and, and communities. Those subsidies should also include funding for research to quantify the impact of those interventions on the local economy, on public health, academic achievement, and other measures. Banerjee, DeFloe, and Kramer won the 2019 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics for their use of randomized controlled trials to establish and document what worked and what did not work to reduce poverty. We need that research. I believe that those subsidies would be a great investment. However, I cannot prove that, and I do not have enough evidence to convince others that we should fund local news like that. Um, I also uh, do not know if 15 hundredths of a percent of GDP is the, is the best number. Others have suggested four hundredths of a percent of GDP. I think 2% of GDP might even be any be might be better. So we need experiments. And what is 15 hundredths of a percent of GDP for Kansas City, Missouri? The average annual income in the United States, GDP per capita, is roughly $80,000 per year. So 15 hundredths of a percent of that is $120 per person per year. The population of Kansas City, Missouri, per the 2020 census, was a little over half a million. Thus, $120 per person for a half a million people is $60 million. We are not likely to get that from the MacArthur Foundation. However, 
the total of 2023 and 2024 um, one-year budget for Kansas City, Missouri for that fiscal year is just over $6 billion. So $60 million is roughly 1% of that. In other words, the citizen-directed subsidies for local news recommended by McChesney and Nichols corresponds to roughly 1% of the budget of Kansas City, Missouri. I like to compare, uh, as I mentioned, news with both accounting and advertising. In government services and nonprofits, we account for expenditures to the last penny. But the accounting for results rarely gets more than lip service. And I happen to think that funding for news should be comparable to the funding for propaganda. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know that, this, that not all advertising is propaganda, but a lot of it is, I think. <laughs> I do not know how much Kansas City, Missouri spends for accounting, but roughly 1% of the U.S. workforce is accountants and auditors. Um, and I do not know, but I think that accountants and auditors probably make more than the average salary. In addition, they require support staffs of people who are neither accountants nor auditors. Therefore, I expect that Casey Mo should probably be spending well over $60 million per year for accounting and auditing. If they are not, I worry taxpayers might benefit from hiring more accountants and auditors. Similarly, I do not know how much Kansas City, Missouri spends for advertising, for media and public relations, but the national average is very roughly 2%. I think the residents of any political jurisdiction would benefit from spending more to subsidize a diverse, cantankerous adversarial press than they spend on propaganda, on trying to convince the public of how great the elected officials are and why the poor and the middle class should be happy about the special perks that governments give to special interests. However, I do not expect the Kansas City, Missouri City Council to spend $60 million, uh, even, if, even if it is only 1% of their budget, on a program um, recommended by someone they may never have heard of before, especially if it may subsidize a flood of commentary that might offend their major campaign contributors. I think we probably could get a portion of those funds from charities like the MacArthur Foundation, but perhaps not more than. 2% of that $60 million, um, and I think that should be targeted for evaluation rather than for actually directly funding local news. However, there are other things that people concerned about these issues might do. Ask school boards, city councils, and county legislatures to fund more honest research into the actual impact of different portions of what they, uh, of what they do evidence-based public policy. Vitaly's end of policing asks us to do that, just that, demand um, evidence-based public policy in education and other areas impacted by law enforcement. His chapter three discusses the school to prison pipeline. He cites multiple sources claiming that putting police in schools seems to make schools less safe, not more. He cites multiple sources, um, whatever. He says that the American Federation of Teachers have been supporting what they call community schools that provide, quote, wraparound services, such as medical and health, mental health care, 
personal counseling, tutoring, community services, social justice programming, as well as adult education and counseling for parents. These schools have, shown, have uh, improved attendance rates and many graduation rates and test scores have increased significant, uh, significantly as well, he wrote. He claims that research shows that these alternative interventions actually cost less than policing and produce better results. Regarding education effectiveness, I feel a need to talk about Stanford economics professor Eric Konoshek. In my judgment, his work ranges from appalling to seminal. Early in his career, uh, Hanashek became a darling of people who wanted to cut funds for education by noting that there is no correlation between per-pupil per expenditures and outcome measures like scores on standardized tests. I think what he did in that area was appalling. Doug? Well, we, uh, he not only supported cutting funding for schools, he also advocated firing teachers whose students got poor grades on standardized tests. Understandably, teachers' unions became vehemently opposed to his work. What he did in that area uh, reflected badly on the university. I'm not sure that he deserves all that much credit or blame for that. Stanford has been the home of other folks who were very controversial. William Shockley, who spouted theories about nature having color-coded individuals so that assessments of their ability can be easily made by the man in the street. That's a direct quote from one of his publications, by the way. They did uh, quietly suppress Shockley after a few years. They've had their share of other scandals as well, and I don't want to pick on Stanford in particular. But certainly, in general, the I, I think I respect great academic institutions a bit less than you do, Spencer. They've over the years, they have managed to shelter some really appalling people and the research thereby. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but Hanashek also documented that countries in geographic regions with higher average test scores tend to have higher rates of economic growth. Thus, almost anything sensible that is done to, uh, to actually reduce school dropouts and improve um, uh, educational achievement would become essentially free after a lag of 30, 30 or 40 years paid by income that we would not have without those improvements in education. To be clear, Vitaly does not um, advocate defunding police. He advocates uh, evidence-based public policies, which means um, um, serious analyses of the functions that uh, police currently perform and asking if there are more uh, effective and less uh, expensive ways of doing of dealing with the problems that police currently solve, Doug, I wouldn't argue uh, with the uh, uh, advocacy for more evaluation. I think I would be a little more skeptical about his uh, dismissal of police as an appropriate uh, source to provide some of the the necessary services. We, we need police to deal with major violence, robbery, burglary, and theft. Natalia cites research claiming it would be safer and more prosperous if we dealt in other ways with mental illness, homelessness, substance abuse, sex work, gangs, and so on. And that's all accurate. 
But to be clear, some of the alternative approaches Vitaly advocates have in fact been adopted by some police departments and court systems, treating disturbing behavior in public as a crime rather than as an indication of a need for mental health intervention, is well-documented as a problem we need to address. Mental health diversion by police and courts appears to be effective and helpful, and uh, without going into great detail, this is something worth looking at, and police can provide some of it. We could also discuss the propensity of some school systems to insist that parents have any disruptive child put on medications or find an alternative schooling placement. So we've got a little bit of a school to uh, uh, criminal justice pipeline going on as well. However, discussing this in proper detail would probably take us another hour, which we don't have. So maybe another time. Creating improvements in all these areas would seem to require citizen activism. They need better media to support and inspire their work. We cannot expect media funded by advertising to provide that information, both because of the dramatic decline in funding for local news and because some of the major advertisers, many of the major advertisers, think they might benefit from the current system of political corruption. There are a few uh, news, new news organizations in Kansas City, uh, like um, the Kansas City Beacon and the Kansas City Defender, to name only two. However, I doubt if we can expect private donations to overcome the huge losses uh, highlighted by uh, uh, McChesney and Nichols and others mentioned above. So what can we do to promote more accurate information promote fact-checking, and, and, and restrain disinformation. What do you think? Alex? Either everybody agrees with us, or they're all just so appalled they don't know where to begin. <laughs> You're going to get a whole host of questions in a few minutes here. And Good. Just a few notes about upcoming uh, series. I'll just mention next Sunday's speaker is going to be Brian Silva. He's with Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. He's their communications director, and he'll be speaking here at the forum next week on the Christian nationalists aren't stopping at abortion. So uh, that will be coming up. The other thing. Anyone see an irony in having this presented at a church? I'm sorry? Anyone see an irony in having that presentation at a church? <laughs> I see a real plus in having it at a church, I guess. Uh, well, I, I agree, but... Uh, uh, okay, so we're going to take questions. Again, we encourage people. These are questions. They're not comments. Uh, and be sure and speak here and speak directly in the mics so the people online uh, who are streaming will be able to hear your questions. And also, for those of you who are live streaming, we're watching, and we can ask your questions for you if you submit them in the chat. This question is for either or both speakers. I would like to know if you're aware of any national print or broadcast organizations that are doing a good job of separating editorial comment from straight news coverage. Are, any, are there any organizations that are doing a good job of that now? I've seen some small independent newspapers that I think do it well. Uh, the local news outlets on, of, of big networks in some places 
they're pretty good. Washington, D.C. has a couple of very good local news organizations that are, of course, with stations that are affiliated with national networks. But really, no matter who you've got, no matter how conscientious a job they're doing, everybody has a point of view. And the most insidious and powerful way of introducing bias is the selection of what stories you cover. That's one another of the reasons it's very important to have diversity, because not everybody will look at the same stories. And that's possibly more important than how they cover them. Right. I, I agree. I, I haven't studied that question extensively. One of my favorite news outlets is a French uh, news monthly called Le Monde Diplomatique. Uh, it's a monthly um, spinoff from the famous Parisian Daily. I like it because uh, because their articles, basically, it's the only newspaper format publication I know of that cites its sources. So it kind of makes it easier for a compulsive fact checker. <laughs> Right. I really liked Al Jazeera America for the short time they were uh, in existence here. They had this odd habit that I learned in journalism classes that people ought to rediscover, that you don't go with a story until you've got it from two independent sources. They were very, very rigorous about that. And as a result, their, their news coverage, in my opinion, was pretty good. So thank you. As I'm thinking through what you've talked about today, it seems to me there are three examples. I'm not sure how they fit with what you talked about today, and that's my issue, not yours. But uh, one of them is when we're looking at, there's, I think, a false dichotomy about before social media and after social media. So the things I'm thinking about, let's bring in the before social media examples and I'm curious how these fit with what you're advocating. So in World War I, particularly the years 1917 to 1921, we had fairly strict censorship of the media. A number of local newspapers and uh, information sources were taken over, particularly relative to the international uh, uh, workers, unions, and efforts. And so I'm curious how all this kind of fits in with that. That's one. The other one is, uh, what, within the last, was this in 2018 when the Kansas City Star made its apology to the African-American community for how they had covered and not covered issues of concern to that community. And so, uh, you know, as we're thinking about well, before social media, we had Kansas City Star and we had these independent reporters and that sort of thing, but it didn't really work to some people's advantage. And then the third and last one that I would mention is if you think about the media in the time of the Daily Machine in Chicago and the Pendergast Machine in Kansas City, um, again, what's to prevent that kind of situation happening even with this more independent media so those wherever you go with that i i would acknowledge another example the way that the hearst newspapers promoted the spanish-american war and that's for broadcast media let alone social media right 
I would say the the role of the media in in uh, conflict has has long been uh, acknowledged. There's a famous book on um, on um, what uh, the the uh, whatever. In any case, in, in my judgment, you cannot describe if you cannot describe in conflict what you see your other your position doing. Uh, it can be extremely difficult to um, devise a sensible solution. Collateral damage that others commit is um, proves to us that our opposition is criminal or at best criminally misled um, and must be resisted by any means necessary. Meanwhile, meanwhile, collateral damage that we commit is unfortunate but necessary from our perspectives. So, um, of course, um, our op opponents don't see that, and that's a information asymmetry that makes it that amplifies political conflict. Um, maybe that, right? So, I've I've forgotten who the source was, but there's a rather famous quote: "In any conflict, truth is the first casualty." Right. Talked about epidemics before. The reason we call the 1918 flu the Spanish flu is not that it originated in Spain, but that it happened during World War I, and Spain was the first country to report it. Nobody else, and it had obviously shown up in everybody's country and in everybody's troops, nobody else wanted to report it for fear of showing weakness to the other side. Spain was not involved in the war, so they were the first ones giving accurate reporting of how many people had gotten sick and how many of them had died. Right, and... Newspaper subsidies or censorship is not always government censorship uh, or censorship to improve, uh, to promote uh, or protect advertisers. Um, uh, early in the U.S. Civil War, um, 1861 to 65, some of the newspapers in the North said that the United States should just let the South secede. They joined voluntarily. Uh, they should be allowed to leave voluntarily. After the first battle of Bull Run, ang angry mobs destroyed some of the offices and printing presses. Um, one editor was forcibly taken from his house by an excited mob, covered with a coat of tar and feathers, and ridden on a rail throughout the town. Others changed their uh, editorial policies quite, vol quote, voluntarily, unquote, recognizing the threats to their lives uh, and property, as well as a loss of audience. One of the things you have to think about with the Civil War, nobody knew at the beginning whether it was lawful for a state to secede from the Union. That wasn't decided until after the war, and uh, basically the outcome of the war influenced the court decision. But Lincoln owed his policies more to Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice than to any study of the Constitution. Yes, you can, South Carolina, you can secede from the Union, but you cannot take with you any federal property, nor can you restrict access to it. It's the old pound of flesh. You can have your pound of flesh, but you can't spill any blood. And uh, you, you, you can take whatever you want, but you can't take any federal facilities. The first shots in the war were fired at Fort Sumter when the Union sent uh, resupply to the fort, and the Confederate batteries on the shore opened fire. So now they've fall, fired on, on the U.S. flag, and that's a, a 
cause a war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, regarding social media, the social media outlets are incredibly good at using data to basically figure out what people click on. So we've got the click economy that that drives people into echo chambers. All right. And there's a literature on that. Hi. Um, I'm wondering in this time where trans issues are so, uh, I don't know if the word is present, it, do we feel there's differences in the media's coverage of the trans community in terms of local and uh, national mainstream coverage? Yes. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yeah, this morning's paper, the new, uh, the Kansas City Star had a uh, article about lights uh, lighting up Kansas City, uh, promoting the new Ferris wheel lighting. It occurred to me that that is a form of propaganda, and some of the, and you mentioned the, uh, the the formula of control and development of the of the city. Uh, promoting entertainment rather than progressive issues like transportation and education. So, how do you how do you propose that we have our newspapers kind of be able to filter out the victims of a, of a propaganda process of promoting bright lights and shiny things for the American public to to enjoy? I think that will always be there. One of the things that the best journalism in this country did in the 1980s dealing with the HIV epidemic and gayness, LGBTQ issues in general, the, the best ones found some LGBTQ people to be reporters and gave them a lot of latitude in what they wrote about. And that made a big difference. It certainly did in San Francisco, which I'm more familiar with than, than many other cities. And uh, we're back to diversity is strength in media. And, and that's really the, I think, the take-home message that Spencer and I have today. Yeah, uh, uh, agreed. So Robert McChesney basically said something similar. He noted that, that some of this money is, if we, if we just, we don't, he doesn't want government bureaucrats nor corporate bureaucrats censoring the media and he acknowledges that some of this money will doubtless go to what journalism outlets that we would call pretty wacko all right but, but you know that's that's the price we pay for um for uh, getting for not allowing the you know people with power to censor the media well, in, in a truly open, competitive media market, what happens is if somebody says something wackadoodle, there are half a dozen other media in the same market that will jump on them. Uh, recently, I read an article, well, it wasn't all that recently, in which they used the term intelligence humility. And they yeah. uh, talked about various uh, times. Well, first of all, they said that when you... Uh, analyzed people they uh thought they knew a whole lot more than they did and uh and then uh when he used a uh, 
uh, he used an, an analogy or a, a story about a, a baseball player who took some advice from a uh, from a cab driver. And instead of thinking the cab driver had no idea what, he, he tried out the advice and it worked. And uh, anyhow, this this made a big impression on me that so many people think they know more than they do. And uh, it said that creative people tended to be the most, most open-minded, which makes sense. But this apparently, I think, or this intelligence humility appears, uh, I've heard the, uh, the term used later, and it appears to be something that we uh, need to analyze a little further. I've done a fair amount of work in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and my sardonic comment looking at what is actually being done, and in particular in places like the military, we're spending billions a year, tens of billions, trying to get machines to think more like humans. We're spending trillions a year trying to massage humans into acting more like automata. <laughs> but I would just add also that Daniel Kahneman won the 2002 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics, even though he is not an economist. He's a research psychologist. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for his leadership in, in documenting all kinds of things like the, the issue of people, uh, everyone thinks they know more than they actually do, inventing a whole new subfield today called behavioral economics that is at the intersection of human psychology and human behavior. 30 years before Kahneman, Herb Simon, who was also not an economist, won the Nobel Prize in economics for basically, it's a little complicated, for the concept of bounded rationality. We, we really don't know that decision makers have enough information to decide wisely all the time, and that they don't have information is part of what goes into their decisions, and that uh, in, in turn influences a lot of phenomena. The Nobel Committee, the Economics Committee, has been trying for years, basically, to smack the profession upside the head every once in a while. The, the, the subject matter is wider and deeper than your profession all necessarily acknowledges and it's been fun to watch from a safe distance uh these these last comments make me think of the french propaganda propagandist uh, expert Jules, where he he noted that people who were think they're not uh, vulnerable to propaganda are actually most most vulnerable to propaganda uh, let me make a I, we have a youtube question from gordon elliott um he says how do you balance the leadership effect of selecting important subjects for the news and yet still have sufficient diversity. Being swamped with too much information is as bad as bias. In, information is a public good. You and I benefit from information that other people consume and that we do not, provided it's, it's decent, you know, it's actually a good quality uh, uh, information. It's a valid point, though. Swamping people with too much irrelevant information is another way to keep them from recognizing what's important. And again, the the uh, 
probably the best answer to that is let other media criticize those who do that. So just within the past week, we have an election on November 7th. I downloaded my sample ballot and I went on the internet looking for commentary on the items that are on that ballot. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> you got it. We don't, we don't have enough people talking about those things, right? If we had more funding for local news, somebody would be talking about it. <laughs> we also have an election here in Virginia. One candidate for school board got disqualified by the court because of an irregularity in her nominating position. Petition. These are nonpartisan offices, but we all know that some of them are endorsed by the Democrats and some of them are endorsed by the Republicans. The person who was disqualified was endorsed by the Democrats and the Republicans went to court to get her knocked off the ballot. There's been very little coverage of that in our local news. I, I you know, get my feed on, on the Internet like everybody does from the Democratic Party and they're screaming bloody murder. But <laughs> this is an interesting story and I've seen almost none of it on the local news. Okay, I thank both of you for joining us today. Appreciate it. Again, thank you all for being here today. See you thank next you week. all. Thanks for listening. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon at 1 p.m., followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m., and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Have a great day.